Hello, yes, it's Friday the 26th of October. I'm Anthony Day and this is the Sustainable Futures Report. We have a new patron. Welcome, silver supporter Ian Duke. Thank you and all your fellow patrons for helping to make the Sustainable Futures Report possible. If you too would like to be a patron, I'll give details at the end. This week it's all about policy, about energy policy, about policies to combat climate change. In recent reports, I've spoken about books, including a Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains by Catherine Wheatman and Designing the Purposeful World by Clive Wilson. Links to both of these on the blog at all the W's sustainablefutures.report. And remember that there's a 20% discount on Catherine's book if you follow the link and quote Circular 20. That's circular in block capitals 20. These books are primarily for business audiences. The book I'm talking about this week has important information for business, but is principally aimed at policymakers. Designing Climate Solutions, a policy guide for low-carbon energy by Hal Harvey, Robbie Orvis and Geoffrey Rissman, is published on the 1st of November. Hal Harvey is the CEO of Energy Innovation, a San Francisco-based energy policy firm. He served on energy panels appointed by Presidents Bush and Clinton, and in 2017 he received the Heinz Award for his long track record fighting climate change. He has bachelor's and master's degrees from Stanford University in engineering, specialising in energy planning. He spoke to me from California to tell me more about the book and his work. We're talking this afternoon about your new book, Designing Climate Solutions, a policy guide for low carbon energy. And I believe that's scheduled for publication on the 1st of November. That's correct. We wanted to write a book that offers in a great deal of practical reality what's required to actually land at a reasonable climate future. Right. And with the IPCC report coming out earlier this month, it's, it's quite good timing, really, isn't it? Well, it's easy to despair when you read a report like that. It's pretty stunning what we're up against. It's mostly not new, but vivid. Yes. Well, and a lot of the points you make in your introduction as well. There's a lot of uh, crossover between what you've uh, started with and what they've put into their report. One of the things that's important to, in thinking about climate change is that we have to go after the largest tons the fastest. Mm -hmm. And we have to use policy to get there. So the system is so complex and there's so many factors, it's very easy to get bogged down or confused or even worse to pursue things that won't make a big difference, but use up your political capital thereby. Yeah. And there is a political issue, isn't there? Because, of course, um, we're well aware on this side of the Atlantic that uh, President Trump has decided to turn his back on the Paris Accord. And he's also told people that the war on coal is over, um, you know, which is pushing things the wrong way, isn't it? Emphatically, the president is abnegating his responsibility to protect the country. There's just no doubt about it. The good news, however, is that almost all energy policy in America is set state by state, uh, and the states are forging ahead. Yes, well, that, that's that's a big difference from here in the UK, because everything is very centralized on, uh, on London, unfortunately. But, uh, 
Yeah, well, it's good to hear. And I know you're in California and California has a reputation for taking the lead in an awful lot of this, isn't it? So California is, if it were a country, would have the fifth largest economy in the world right now. Uh We've cut climate change emissions pretty dramatically already and saved a huge amount of money in the doing. The governor signed uh, both a bill and an executive order recently. The, The bill requires zero carbon electricity by 2045, completely mm-hmm. zero carbon. Yeah. And the executive order requires the state to pursue the same in all the other sectors as well. So it gives us a chance to uh, understand the economics, to do some long-term planning, to push forward on new technologies, but most emphatically to deploy what we've already got. Yeah. But of course, time is of the essence because um, uh, in climate change, delay is the killer. I think I've got that out of your book as well. Um, uh, Nicholas Stern, the economist, said back in 2006 when he wrote his his report that 1% um, of global GDP could fix the problem. We haven't done an awful lot. The IPCC is now saying 2% of global GDP could fix the problem. Um, But uh, you make the point in your book that... um, if we let things slide, even for a few years, we're going to have to work very much harder to, to pull things back again. So, so two important points here. The first is every ton of carbon dioxide we emit will persist much of it for over a thousand years. It's, yeah. the, it's the gift that keeps on giving, if you will. So delay creates permanent harm. And that's absolutely crucial to understand. It's not a matter of waiting around until we have the perfect technology and then deploying it. The, the the second thing that is important here is many people think of fixing climate change as something that costs a lot of money. Mm-hmm. It's crucial to remember that we spend about $5 trillion per year already on energy. Almost all of that goes to fossil. The, the challenge is to divert the existing cash flow from brown choices to green choices, not to conjure up new money. Mm-hmm. Well, I've just come across a report, and I don't know whether you are aware of it. Uh, it's the new climate economy report. Um, right. And and that says that um, we could have a dividend by 2030 of $26 trillion if we, uh, if we go for a, a decarbonized economy. If you go to one of our web pages called energypolicy.solutions, there's an interactive model. It works now for seven countries where you can choose any policy you like. We've got more than 50 of them, and it will immediately show you in graphics what will happen to carbon dioxide. But it also shows you what happens to cash flow. And the good news is almost all the clean choices require some upfront capital, but get vastly repaid in well under 10 years through saved energy costs. So, again, we're talking about a, a political choice to override the interests of incumbents, but it's not a sacrifice narrative, not in any way. Right. That's energy policy dot. Solutions. Solutions. OK, right. I'll make sure I. Uh make a note of that. Yeah, good. Um, in the book, you start with the power sector, which I'm sure is is a major emitter. Energy is uh, is guilty of using almost more fossil fuel than, than anything. Um, hotly pursued by transportation, of course. Uh, you've covered the building and construction sector, and then you've looked at industry. One thing you haven't mentioned is uh, agriculture. And a lot of people say, well, agriculture with methane from livestock is, is one of the most serious uh, emitters of greenhouse gases. 
No, there's no question that agriculture and land use more broadly, deforestation, afforestation, is crucially important. This is a book that focused on the energy system, which comprises almost 80% right. of CO2 emissions. There are some important, uh, there are obviously important things we have to do with agriculture. We focused on energy for three reasons. First, it is the lion's share with almost 80% of the total. Second, it has centralized decision makers. Uh-huh. Public Utilities Commission can affect billions of tons, quite literally, of CO2 emissions, whereas there are, there are billions of farmers one would have to affect. Um, and, yeah. and third, <laughs> Bluntly, it's our area of expertise yes. in agriculture and land use is not. Okay, okay, fair, fair point, fair point. Uh, we're not going to do this on our own. We've got, we've got, I think, to engage public opinion. We really have. Now, uh, you've got your midterm elections coming up, and I see there's been quite a hot debate on uh, climate change between uh, Ted Cruz in Texas and his, uh, Repub- his Democratic opponent. But the article that I read said that's one of the very few debates on climate change in the whole of the midterm campaign. Um, is it really on, on, on the radar um, as far as public opinion in the States is concerned? Unfortunately, the very term climate change has become politicized, uh, not just in the U.S., but in a lot of Anglophone nations, yeah. including Iran. Um, it, it turns out to be uh, have been used as a political football for so long by the Republican Party that it's actually not very profitable to spend political time on that term per mm-hmm. se. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you talk about clean energy, there's more than 80 percent support, I think, in both parties right now. Yeah. And two thirds of renewables in America have been deployed in so-called red states, the, the Republican dominated states. So we just need to be a little more clever about what political vocabulary we use when we're trying to get important things done. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a good point. The interesting thing is, of course, uh, Texas is well known as an oil state, but it's one of the leaders in renewables as well, isn't it? It's exactly the case. One thing one can discover is there are there are no Republicans in a child's asthma ward in a hospital. There are no Democrats either. There are only kids that are having trouble breathing. Yeah. And when it comes time to pay the utility bills, everybody's happy to get a bill that doesn't include huge energy costs, just a you know, free wind or free solar. Yeah. So we we emphatically need to turn this to solutions rather than problems, which is actually why we, we call the book Designing Climate Solutions. We don't spend a lot of time talking about the horrors of climate change. We don't even talk about climate change per se in great depth. Mm-hmm. We really focus on what are the specific things you can do if you're serious about solving it. Right, right, okay. Um, are you aware of the Juliana case? I'm not. Okay, uh, well this is a group of um, young people in the United States who have been taking the, the government and the president to court for the last three years. Mm. Um, yes, I am aware. I just didn't know the name. I'm sorry. Right. Okay. Well, that, well, that's my shorthand. Yeah. Well, the latest thing is that the uh, the um, the plaintiffs have been given six days to provide um, documentation, or they risk having the action struck out. Do you think this is the end of the road for it? No, I don't. It may be for one particular case, but the idea that fossil companies, with full knowledge of what's going on, continue to impose long-term costs and pay zero price for it, that idea is evaporating. And the oil majors are starting to understand it, and so are the coal companies. Mm-hmm. There is a, there's a series of different legal avenues for cities 
states and even individuals to pursue to recover damages, as it were. I think if I was in the management of a large fossil company, I would be very fast to turn around both in public statements, but also in investments. You're either going to be holding the bag at the end of the day here, or you're going to be part of the solution. Right, right. Okay. Um, I, I, let, let me make one more point, to, if that's all right. Because of Go ahead. Go ahead. One of the challenges in thinking about solutions to climate change is that there are so many options. Should you become a vegan? Should you stop traveling? Should you buy an electric car? Should you uh, protest? Should you try to get a pipeline stopped and so forth? Mm. It's absolutely crucial if we're serious about winning to choose the small number of policies that make a huge difference. We need to focus our political energies much more tightly than we have so far. And if we fail to do that, we're squandering concern and political energy with strategies that cannot make much of a difference. And this is one of the things I fear the most. Right. Well, that, that's a very good point. But where would you then say that we should be concentrating our efforts? So the beginnings of wisdom are to look at the four energy sectors that cause carbon emissions. So mm -hmm. that's, that's electric utilities, transportation, buildings, and industry. In every one of those sectors, there's between one and three policies that are home runs that deliver a huge amount <clears throat> of carbon savings. And there are dozens that are trivial. And then there are strategies which are morally and ethically sound, mm -hmm. but don't deliver the goods. So for example, divestment. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I think it's perfectly fine to divest, a, a good idea to divest from fossil fuels for lots of reasons, but that's not a carbon reduction strategy. That's an ethical and moral pursuit. Mm -hmm. No company is going to stop releasing fossil fuels if it's making money by doing so. There's no shortage of capital in the world. So instead, we need to grasp onto those small number of policies, numbering less than a dozen in total, that deliver very large returns. Right. Okay. Okay. I'd just like to quote something from your book from the conclusion where you say this task is by no means impossible. We have the technology today to rapidly move to a clean energy system and the price of that future without counting environmental benefits is about the same as that of a carbon intensive future. So the challenge is not technical nor even economic but rather is a matter of enacting the right policies and ensuring they are properly designed and enforced. It's a message of optimism there, I think. Emphatically. But note those words, choosing the right policy and ensuring that they're properly designed. Yeah. This, gets, this, this is absolutely crucial. We have people who are devoting their lives to abating climate change, but landing on strategies that cannot scale or are too slow. And we can't afford that kind of distraction. And that's the essence of the book, is to make sure we, if we're going to spend time trying to save the world, we do the right things and we do them promptly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's another very good point. Thank you. Okay, well, this has been really interesting. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we wind up? Just a, just a quick word or two. Once you've landed on the right policy, and the book Designing Climate Solutions is a, is a great guide to that, this is where one should focus one's attention. And, and I'll just give a couple very quick examples. Mm -hmm. In the United States, in every country, there's an authority that sets the regulations for electricity. Those regulations will have utilities either buying brown energy like coal mm -hmm. or even natural gas or clean energy like solar and wind. 
make yourself relevant in that venue if you're serious about climate change. It's not a matter of marching in the streets. It's not a matter of readjusting your stock portfolio. It's a matter of getting into exactly where those decisions are made and becoming a prominent force, a real factor. It requires more research. It requires more homework. It doesn't mean you have to be an energy expert or a utility expert, but that's where the action is. That's where we save the world. There are similar venues, by the way, for transportation, for buildings, and so forth. Choose one, get to know it, get in there, and push very hard. That's a very interesting thought. Hal Harvey, thank you very much for for sharing your ideas with us. Um, And as I uh, repeat, the book is Designing Climate Solutions, a Policy Guide for Low Carbon Energy. It's published on the 1st of November. And uh, thank you again. Thanks for the opportunity, Anthony. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hal Harvey, CEO of Energy Innovation. Find out more at energyinnovation.org. The Energy Policy Simulator, which Hal mentioned, is at all the W's, energypolicy.solutions. It's Juliana again. I get updates on the Juliana case almost every day, but I only bring them to your attention when something important happens. As I mentioned in the interview, Juliana versus the United States, brought by 21 young activists against the federal government in the U.S. District Court in Oregon, alleges that the United States government's affirmative actions helped to cause climate change, violating the youngest generation's constitutional rights to life, liberty and property, and failed to protect essential public trust resources. Although Judge Aiken ruled that the president could not be a party to the case, as I reported last week, the government remains firmly in the frame. A headline in the Plainview Daily Herald says, U.S. temporarily stops youth climate lawsuit days before trial. But when I clicked on the link, I got 451, unavailable for legal reasons. Sorry, this content is not available in your region. Fortunately, Forbes magazine gave me the full story. Forbes reports on Thursday, Trump's Justice Department lawyers again asked the High Court to dismiss the case before it went to trial on October the 29th, saying the suit attempts to redirect federal environmental policies through the courts rather than through the political process. They also claimed harm from the costs of litigation. 19-year-old Vic Barrett from White Plains, New York, one of the plaintiffs, said, We are six business days from a trial we have been preparing for three years. The lengths my own government is going to get this case thrown out and avoid trial is absurd and offensive. This case is not about money. This is not about the harms to the government or how much money the government has paid its experts or how many hours their lawyers have to work. This is about my future and the future of our youngest generations. This is about fundamental constitutional rights of children. We are simply asking for our right to be heard. I'll keep you posted. Vox.com carries the headline... We could shift to sustainability and save $26 trillion. Why aren't we doing it? Well, why aren't we? I tracked down the source for this claim and found the New Climate Economy report. You can find it at newclimateeconomy.report slash 2018 and take five minutes to watch the video. But who or what is the New Climate Economy? 
According to the website, the Global Commission on the Economy and Climate and its flagship project, the New Climate Economy, was set up to help governments, businesses and society make better informed decisions on how to achieve economic prosperity and development while also addressing climate change. The new climate economy was commissioned in 2013 by the governments of seven countries, Colombia, Ethiopia, Indonesia, Norway, South Korea, Sweden and the United Kingdom. The commission has operated as an independent body and has been given full freedom to reach its own conclusions. Led by its global commission, it has disseminated its messages by engaging with heads of governments, finance ministers, business leaders and other key economic decision makers in over 30 countries around the world. Names I recognise on the global commission include Paul Polman, CEO of Unilever, and Nicholas Stern, President of the Royal Economic Society. They are among some 30 experts of equal standing from all over the world. The headline of the report reads, The growth story of the 21st century can unlock unprecedented opportunities of a strong, sustainable, inclusive economy. The benefits of climate action are greater than ever before, while the costs of inaction continue to mount. It is time for a decisive shift to a new climate economy. This chimes very much with the quote I read from Hal Harvey's book during the interview. As I said, if you go to all the W's newclimateeconomy.report, you can download the report, but if you've only got five minutes, I recommend you do watch the video. On the transport front, Heathrow Airport offers a special deal to the first electric or hybrid aeroplane to fly in and out on a scheduled service. For the first year, it will waive all landing fees, which some say could be worth a million pounds. Pocket Lint. Now, I don't know where they get these names from either, but Pocket Lint, that's pocket-lint.com, reports that future electric cars could store energy in their bodywork. Researchers at the Chalmers University of Technology in Sweden have proved that carbon fibres can be used to store energy directly, which could be of major benefit to electric vehicles. It means that manufacturers can theoretically turn the entire body of a car into its battery. Apparently it could solve the range problem of electric cars while being 50% lighter. Could be useful for Heathrow's electric aircraft. If you follow the link which you'll find on the blog, you can look at the graphic on the website. News just in is that James Dyson is building a factory in Singapore to produce electric cars. Let's hope he does better than the last vacuum cleaner manufacturer to get into road transport. The Sinclair C5, a sort of electric tricycle which was billed as the future, really didn't make it even if you pedalled very hard. It was so low down that it came with a mast with a flag on top in case lorries and bus drivers failed to notice it and ran over it. Even without that, it never became a success. Come to think of it, I haven't heard much about Hoover recently. And finally... Department store chain John Lewis announces that if shopping is too stressful for you, you can have their new branch in Cheltenham all to yourself for an evening, just as long as you commit to spending at least £10,000. Somewhere to take the family at half-term, perhaps. 
Next week, I shall be volunteering at the local food bank and pay-as-you-feel cafe. Somewhere to take the family at the half-term holiday, if you can't afford to feed them when there are no school meals. I'm not sure whether this societal divide is truly sustainable. Or moral, for that matter. We've reached the end of another episode. I've had a lot of feedback about plastic and I've uncovered several other stories about it, so that'll be the theme for next week. I'm also going to follow up on a few energy stories as well. Thank you for listening and thank you to my patrons. As I promised at the beginning, here's how you too can become a patron. You just need to hop across to all the W's, patreon.com slash SFR, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash SFR, and sign up to support the Sustainable Futures Report for a dollar a month or more. This helps me cover the costs of hosting the podcast. As always, links to all my stories are on the blog at all the W's, sustainablefutures.report. And that's it for another week. I'm Anthony Day. That was the Sustainable Futures Report. Bye for now. Thank you.